Well, good evening. Good to see everybody. Here we are again for the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 12 tonight, it's been a fascinating study. And last Wednesday night in chapter 11, it's really good about the two witnesses and uh, what's going to happen there. The seventh trumpet blows. And then tonight we have a really interesting chapter, a lot happening in chapter 12. Uh, it's one of those chapters that uh, easily is misinterpreted by so many people. And We'll look at it what, it, what it means tonight and, and try to dig through there. But we're glad that you're here. Wherever you're joining us online, we welcome you as well. Every Wednesday night, we have people from all over the United States. We have a large group from Wichita Falls area and Oklahoma and Seattle and North Atlanta and different places. And so wherever you are and however you join us, we welcome you tonight as well. Good to see a good crowd here with us in person. And let's have a word of prayer and we'll get started with our, with our study. Father, thank you tonight for your word, and thank you, Father, for how you have shown to us, unveiled to us through Revelation, so many things about, about the future and our world, and God, just exactly what's going to happen. I pray that you give us insight and wisdom tonight through the Holy Spirit. God, your word is inerrant, it's infallible, it is our final authority. It is you speaking to us, and so I pray that you'll do that again this evening as we look at the 12th chapter of Revelation. God, bless those who are here in person, bless those online, wherever they are, that they too would experience your presence uh, teaching them tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Revelation chapter 12, we are to uh, the, uh, the three-and-a-half-year mark of the seven-year tribulation. And uh, we, that's what we'll begin looking at with the woman and the dragon and then Satan being thrown down to earth. Some interesting passages uh, in our 17 verses tonight. First of all, letter A on your outline by way of recap. Let's kind of see where we are so far. The word revelation means, uh, it means to unveil. It's the word apocalypse. Uh, in the Greek language, it means an unveiling, something that's previously been hidden, has now been made known. Uh, it does not mean cataclysmic. It does not mean uh, chaos. I think it's what you think of when you think of the apocalypse. But it simply means to unveil something that's been hidden that has been now made known. Written to the seven churches of Asia Minor, John, Jesus' disciple, wrote it, island of Patmos around 90 A.D., uh, wrote it to the letter to the, to the seven churches there in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are those letters to the seven churches. Then chapters 4 and 5, he sees a vision of the throne room of heaven. He sees God. He sees Jesus take the, uh, the scroll, and he's the only one worthy to open the seven seals. And once he opens the seven seals, then you have everything that begins to happen on the earth, the seven-year tribulation time. Uh, at the end of the world. Beginning in chapter 6, the seven seals are broken, followed by seven trumpet blasts. Uh, the first four seals, judgment on the earth. The first four trumpet blasts, judgment on the earth. And so we see a lot of things happening on earth uh, that, um, uh, that, that whenever the seals are open and the trumpets are blown. Chapter 10, we have an interlude before the seventh uh, trumpet is blown, an angel in a smaller scroll. We talked about that. And then last week in chapter 11, the two witnesses during the tribulation time that will prophesy, preach, the city of Jerusalem will hate it. They'll kill them. The Antichrist will kill them. They'll lay in the street for three and a half days until finally they're resurrected with the world watching, with all the mass media watching, will be resurrected again right before their very eyes. And then the seventh trumpet blows and whenever it does, it begins to signal with the seventh trumpet that the Antichrist 
is defeated. And the work of Satan then is no longer, uh, he, he, uh, he's uh, out of business. He's out of commission. The, his his uh, fate is uh, coming. So tonight we're going to see one last ditch effort by the beast, Satan himself, to try to uh, um, uh, persecute God's people and persecute the nation of Israel. So that's where we are, chapter 12. Chapter 12 can be overwhelming if you just read it, try to figure it out. Chapter 12 lends itself to a lot of eisegesis. You remember what eisegesis is? It's reading into a passage something that's there. Exegesis is where you take what God's already given us and draw it out. Well, to interpret Revelation correctly, you exegete, you don't eisegete. Whenever you read into a passage what you think may be there or what could be there, you come up with the wrong interpretations. So remember, don't eisegete, exegete. But chapter 12 has been the, the source of a lot of exegesis through the years. Remember now as you interpret Revelation. Remember one of our principles is if a passage can be taken literally, take it literally. Don't read into all these uh, symbols and all the symbolism. If it, if, if it can be taken literally, take it literally. That will come into play tonight. Because well, I've seen so many things in Revelation chapter 12. Oh, this means this and this means that. And this is a symbol of this and this is a symbol of that. No, no, take it literally if it can be taken literally. And you're going to miss the meaning if you don't. So, having said that, let's begin looking Chapter 12 of, of Revelation, uh, first of all, letter B on your outline, the woman and the dragon, uh, ver the first six verses of chapter 12, the woman and the dragon. Verse 1, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. Now, let's go to verse 2 also. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Well, that's an odd way to start, isn't it? So, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Verse 1 opens, God gave John a revelation of Satan's activity during the tribulation, the last part of the seven-year tribulation. So, he gives him a glimpse. This is what Satan is going to be up to, and I want you to see it. So, because of chapter 12, we, it allows us to have a better understanding of the world events. Who's behind the world events? What, what is Satan doing to try to undermine God and Jesus during the tribulation. So this gives us some good insight. There are secret maneuvers that he tries to make that we're going to see. There's been an ongoing conflict between Satan and God ever since Satan fell from heaven. You remember he was a good angel at one time. He chose to do wrong and he rebelled against God and one-third of the angels rebelled with him. They became the demons. And ever since that time when that happened, there's been an ongoing conflict between Satan and God, between good and evil. 
And we see it tonight in a powerful way, first in heaven and then on earth. So let's, let's look. He said, he began with, he looked into heaven and he saw a woman who was clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet. She had a crown of 12 stars on her head. So obvious question is, who is this woman? Who is she? Well, there have been all kind of theories. Some say it's the church. She represents the church. Others say, no, she represents Israel. Because several times in the Old Testament, Israel was portrayed as a woman. Uh, Isaiah 54, Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, Hosea 2. Israel is portrayed as a woman. So that's possible. Maybe it's Israel. Some say it's Mary, the one who gave birth to Jesus. It's Mary, the Virgin Mary. By the way, Catholics believe that the woman in chapter 12 is Mary. Others say it's a remnant of the saved. Maybe. I'll tell you what I think here in just a moment and, and why I think it. Christian scientists, by the way, they believe the woman is Mary Baker Eddy. She's the founder of the Christian science movement, and they believe it's her. This woman in Revelation 12 is her. Now, several times in the Bible, a woman is represented as a religious system. Um, the great harlot in Revelation represents false religions. Jezebel in the New Testament is representative of false teaching. The bride is representative of the church, right? And so several times in the New Testament you have a woman being pictured as in some type of religious system. So keep that in mind too. But she had the sun, she's wrapped in the sun, the moon, and the 12 stars. Now where have we heard that before? Sun, moon, and 12 stars. If you go back to Genesis, absolutely right. If you go back to Genesis 37, that's the dream Joseph had. Remember Joseph's dream? He had a dream, and there was a sun who represented Jacob at the time, and, and a moon, the moon which represented Rachel, and, and, and 11 stars. It was him and his 11 brothers. It was Israel. And so now we have it again. The sun, the moon, and 12 stars. It's a repeat of Joseph's dream in Genesis chapter 37. By the way, uh, Roman Catholic art depicts Revelation 12, and it's the Virgin Mary with the sun around her head. Uh, she's the crescent moon uh, is around her feet, the 12 stars on her head. And so they believe it's, it's Mary because she's the one that gave birth to the Savior. So let's see what happened. She had this picture of this woman, pregnant woman. She was pregnant, verse 2, and she's crying out in birth. Birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now, Israel as a woman giving birth is also a figure in the Old Testament. Isaiah 66, 
Jeremiah 4, Jeremiah 13, Mark in the New Testament 4 and 5, both images of Israel as a woman in childbirth. So it could be Israel. What's the pain? What's the pain of childbirth? It appears to be, as you read in the context, the pain appears to be God's people going through persecution before the Messiah arrives because the child is obviously going to be the Messiah, Jesus. So Israel giving birth to the Messiah. That's what it appears to be. And the pain that's associated with it is the pain that's felt by God's people right before the Messiah came. You remember right before Jesus' first coming, his birth in the manger? Israel Oh my goodness, they were, they were in persecution crying out to God for a deliverer. They were in pain. They were being persecuted. And now at the second coming, Israel's going to be persecuted, crying out in pain. So the birth pains appear to be the persecution of God's people before the Messiah is born and appears. But look what happens in verse 3. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his heads seven diadems. Who's the dragon? Satan. Absolutely right. How do we know? The Bible tells us. Chapter 20 of Revelation, verse 2, tells us the dragon Satan. So we don't have to wonder. We don't have to conjecture. We know exactly because we're told in the Bible it's Satan. Twelve times in the New Testament the word dragon is used, all of them in Revelation, and every single time referring to Satan. So we know beyond any doubt this red, great red dragon. Why red? Most people believe because of the bloodshed that's happening of God's people at this time. There's a lot of it. Two-thirds of them die. Red for the bloodshed, and this dragon shows up. He has seven heads and ten horns. Who are those? Political kingdoms of the world, according to Daniel 7. So we're again told in Daniel what this means. So the seven are seven nations that are in league with Satan during the tribulation. There were 10 nations, but remember in Daniel 7, three of them were subdued by the little horn, little horn in Daniel 7, and so now we've got seven. So there are seven nations that will bind together, be in league with Satan during the tribulation that will try to destroy the Messiah. Now look what he does, verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to earth. Remember, that's what happened. The devil, whenever he fell, a third of, the, a third of the angels fell with him, and they became demons. That's what it's talking about. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Get the picture. Woman giving birth, Israel. Jesus is the, is the, the child. 
Satan the dragon ready, trying to devour the child so the Messiah can't come. See, we're given a glimpse into what happened. Now, we see that in the birth of Christ, don't we? Satan tried to get rid of Jesus. How? Herod? Remember that? Herod killed all the male babies born. The, the, the massacre of the innocents. Trying to kill the Messiah. And then, you remember, after Jesus was born in the manger, Mary and Joseph had to flee to Egypt because Herod killed all the two, more, two years of age and younger, trying to kill him. From the very beginning, Satan was behind trying to kill the Messiah. And then two times in the Gospels, he attacks Jesus, trying to kill the Messiah. And then what happened at the cross? Trying to kill the Messiah. But it didn't work. He resurrected on the third day. But from the very beginning, he was there waiting on the child, trying to kill the Messiah. Now, here's just a side note that I find interesting. Who wrote Revelation? John. John also wrote a gospel, right? Four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Of all four gospels, which is the only one that does not record Jesus' birth? John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record the manger. John doesn't. There's no, there's no Christmas narrative in the gospel of John. Is this his Christmas narrative? Is Revelation 12 his description of the birth of Christ? If it is, which it appears to be, he gives us more characters than shepherds and wise men and the manger and the innkeeper. He gives us another character there, a devil. The devil was in the manger, ready to catch the child when he was born so he could kill him. Verse 5. But she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Folks, verse 5 is a one-verse summary of the life and ministry of Jesus. One-verse summary. Child was born. He ruled the nations with a rod of iron, which, by the way, is a quote of Psalm 2, verse 9. And then he was caught up to God, the ascension, after his work was done and went to heaven. It's, it's a one-verse summary of, of his life. So, interpretation of the woman. Let's see what we know so far. The woman gave birth to the Messiah. So, the woman can't be the church, right? The church didn't birth Jesus. Jesus birthed the church. So, it can't be the church. Can't be a remnant. They didn't birth Jesus either. So it either has to be Mary, as the Roman Catholics say, or it has to be Israel. Because they're the only two that birthed Christ. But it can't be Mary because we're going to see in the next verse that the woman fled to the wilderness after she birthed him. And Mary didn't do that. 
has to be Israel. So the woman has to be Israel to fit the narrative of everything that happened. So look at verse 6. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Let me stop. Verse 6 is fascinating. Let me stop there for a minute. Let's talk about it. First of all, how long is 1,260 days? Three and a half years. So we're at the midpoint of the seven-year tribulation. So for the next three and a half years... Satan is going to be, didn't get to kill Jesus when he was here, so Satan is now going to attack God's people. He turns his attention from trying to devour Jesus, didn't work, to trying to devour God's people. So for three and a half years, he is going to unleash all the forces of hell against Israel and any remnant that may be here. So, he attacks Israel. Israel, because of this persecution that's coming, she's the woman, flees into the wilderness. But God has a place in the wilderness prepared to take care of her. And he's going to take care of her for three and a half years. So, where is this place in the wilderness that Israel is going to be protected for three and a half years? Well, Daniel tells us, he gives us a clue. Daniel eleven forty one says this. The Antichrist will attack the beautiful land, that's Israel, but will be helped by Edom, Moab, and the select leaders of Ammon. Where is Edom, Moab, and Ammon today? Anybody know? Jordan. The country of Jordan. So, during the tribulation, Israel, the remnant's going to flee because of the persecution of Satan the last three and a half years, flee to Jordan. And God is going to use Jordan to protect her. 1994, some of you might remember, not that long ago, Israel and Jordan signed a peace treaty. So one of Israel's greatest allies today is Jordan. Israel trains Jordanian pilots. Whenever we go there, we see the Jordanian pilots flying over the Dead Sea, trained by Israel. They're allies. In times... Jordan's going to take care of them. Jordan, even today, is kind of a buffer from Israel, the more aggressive neighbors like Iran and Syria. Jordan gives the buffer there. So Jordan's where they're going to flee to the wilderness. Now, think with me. Those of you who have been there may know where I'm going. What's the wilderness of Jordan? southern part. Northern part's not Nebo where Moses died. And things. What's, it's the southern part. What's in the southern part? Petra. How many has been to Petra? Quite a few of you. Ted, you fell off a donkey in Petra one time whenever we were there. <laughs> Take you to the hospital. Petra. So a lot of theologians believe Petra is going to be in the last days where Israel flees and Jordan nourishes them for three and a half years. 
What is Petra, if you don't know? Petra is a, is a, it's beautiful. It's in the southern portion. It's in the wilderness. The Nabataeans, which are wandering Arabs, first century, uh, so at the time of Jesus, it would, have, it would have been there. First century became very wealthy from trade routes. So they built this beautiful city called Petra, means rock, in the southern portion that would be on the trade route because they grew very wealthy. So it is extravagant. It was rediscovered in the 1800s. And you have a palace, and you have a treasury, and you have a huge library, all in the cliffs of the rocks. And these red, beautiful sand, uh, red rocks. Obadiah talks about Petra. You who in Edom are lifted up in the lofty dwellings. They lived in the rocks, and you had beautiful palaces, and tombs, and treasury, and library. And it's a beautiful city down there. And it's, it's really, it's one of the top seven wonders of the world, one of the top seven places people visit today. Petra is between valleys where you could look like river or floods have carved it out. That'll come into play in just a moment. So, a lot of theologians believe, current theologians as well as former theologians, previous years, believe Petra is the location. Israel will flee to be nourished by Jordan. And by the way, uh, some Christian businessmen in Israel have gone to Petra and stashed in the rocks food for Israel during the tribulation. And they've also stashed in the rocks of Petra gospel tracts written in Hebrew so they can know how to trust Jesus as Messiah. So those are there today, by the way. Christian businessmen have already done that in preparation for the tribulation, thinking that it's going to be Petra. So, so far, what have we got? We've got a woman and a dragon, enmity between them, pain at childbirth. What does that sound like? The Garden of Eden. You have a woman and a serpent, an enmity between them, and the result, what was the woman's curse? That she would have pain in childbirth. And so you see a lot of parallels to the, from the end times to the beginning of time. There in the Garden of Eden. Now, let's move on. Letter B on your outline. Satan is thrown down to earth. I'm sorry, letter C on your outline. Satan is thrown down to earth, verses 7 to 17. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. Let me stop there for a moment. The scene shifts. For six verses are what's happening on earth. And how the devil is just creating havoc. Now, verse 7, John begins to see what's going on in heaven while things are going on. There's a conflict there, too. Verse 7, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So, at the three-and-a-half-year mark of the tribulation, Daniel 12.1 describes it, God will turn the tide against Satan. First in heaven and then on earth. And we're looking at what Satan is doing in heaven. Now, three chapters in the Bible give us hints about the devil. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, and Revelation 12. If you put all three of them together, you can construct a profile of his history. So that's what we're going to do. 
war rose, Michael and his angels, Satan and his demons. Now, a couple of questions, verse 7. One question is, who's Michael? We'll get there in just a moment. Second question, how in the world does Satan have access to heaven? That's a good question, isn't it? What's he doing in heaven? Well, there seems to be, we'll answer the second question first. There seems to be, in some sense, Satan has access to a heavenly council before God. Doesn't mean he lives in heaven. Doesn't mean he dwells there. He has access. Job 1, remember Job 1, 6, verse 6? The, Satan appeared before God in the heavenly council, and God said, have you noticed my servant Job? He's doing a good job. And then that conversation ensues between God and, and Satan. So there's some type of heavenly council by which he appears. How does that work? We don't really know for certain. I've heard one, I heard one uh, theologian describe it this way. It's kind of like diplomats of a hostile nation who still appear trying to negotiate. For example, in World War II, whenever Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and America declared war against Japan and Germany, there were still diplomats in the U.S. from Japan and Germany and Italy, and they stayed. They stayed here. In fact, I think the U.S. government put them up one place in West Virginia, and I can't remember where the other place was. Today, when war is imminent, diplomats are given 72 hours to get out. But they're there for a while until they're forced to leave. That's as kind of the best picture we can. Satan has access to God, to his counsel, but he, but he then is cast out forever. What does he do with that access? Well, we're told that he accuses the brothers day and night. He brings your name up. He accuses the brothers and sisters in Christ before God. Can you wonder what that sounds like? Oh, that old Greg Ammons down there. Do you know what he does? you know what he thinks? But I'm covered under the blood of Christ, so the accusations are of no avail. He accuses you. He accuses the brothers and sisters day and night. So, when he's there with his demons, there appears to be a war breakout between Michael, the archangel, and Satan. And as a result, Michael wins and Satan is thrown down to earth, never having any kind of access to heaven again. He'll be chained in the bottomless pit. So, who is Michael? Second question of this verse. Bible tells us he's an archangel. Uh, Jehovah Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists believe Michael in chapter 12 is Jesus. So why would they believe that? Well, because it says his angels, and angels don't have angels, do they? Well, there appears to be a rank where an archangel has authority over other angels, so it could be his angels. But they also, the word uh, Michael means one like God, so they think that Michael could be Jesus. And just the word archangel, they think, is, sounds like a regular angel. So they believe it's Jesus. But in Jude 9, Michael says, 
the Lord rebuke you to the devil. So why would Jesus say the Lord rebuke you when he is the Lord? So Michael doesn't appear to be Jesus, even though Jehovah Witnesses and Seventh-day Adventists believe that he is. Mormons believe Mike, Jesus, and Satan are brothers. One turned out good, one turned out bad. That's what Mormons believe. But what's interesting is the battle appears to be pretty equal. Now, whenever God fights Satan, it's not equal. But when an angel fought Satan, it appeared to be a pretty equal battle. Until finally Michael won. Those of you who are literary buffs, uh, Milton, whenever he wrote Paradise Lost, he's describing the battle in Revelation 12 between Michael and Satan. Verse 8, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Verse 9, and the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Notice about every name we have in the Bible for Satan is all mentioned in verse 9. Did you notice that? He's called the great dragon, that ancient serpent, Satan, the deceiver. He's called, uh, he's called about just the devil, about every name that we have. The word, of course, devil uh, is diabolos, uh, you know, as we know. And the word Satan literally means accuser. What does he do before God? About He accuses you. That means accuser. And Satan will be thrown down, we're told this, three times to the earth before the tribulation ends. So once he's thrown down... What happens next? Verse 10, praise in heaven, a praise song. So verses 10, 11, and 12 are a praise song in heaven because Satan no longer has access there. And verse 10 is verse 1 of the, of the song, stanza 1. Verse 11, stanza 2. And verse 12 is stanza 3 of the praise song. So let's read the praise song, verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Just as a side note, if you ever hear this voice in your mind telling you how bad you are, as a believer, know who it is. It's the accuser. Because you see, you as a believer in Jesus are the righteousness of Christ. It has been imputed to you. Now, you don't deserve it. I don't either. But it's been imputed to us. So, we are the righteousness of Christ and will stand before God one day as the righteousness of Christ. So if you hear the voices of, oh, you're nothing, look who you are. Oh, and there's accusation after accusation. Know where it's coming from. It's not the Holy Spirit. It's the one whose name means accuser. He's the one accusing you. He still does it. And we're told in the first stanza, he does it night and day. The second stanza, verse 11. 
And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even to death. Talking about those martyrs. How did they overcome the tribulation? The blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. Because they didn't love their own life. Gave it up for Christ. And then the third stanza, verse 12. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. That's the praise song, verses 10, 11, 12. The praise in heaven. So what happens now, the last few verses we're going to look at before we close. Satan's kicked out of heaven, loses the battle against Michael, forever to be chained, never have any kind of access to God again. He knows his time is short, so he goes all out. So the last three and a half years of the seven are Satan's all-out fury on earth. Now look at verse 13. When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, who's that Israel, who had been given birth to the male child. He turns his attention to Israel. So in the last three and a half years of tribulation, folks, you're going to see Israel go through it. Verse 14. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished, maybe Petra, for a time, times, half a time, three and a half years. So, what does verse 14 mean? Satan lands on earth, goes hard after Israel, any Christ followers that may be part of Israel that have received Jesus as Messiah, they're going to be nourished but they're going to be rescued by the wings of the great eagle. Now, let's talk about that for a moment. What are the wings of the great eagle? Well, a lot of theories. One is uh, eagles that would be symbolic of angels. So angels are going to come and rescue them. Uh, Another theory is whose symbol of nations is an eagle? America. One theory is America is going to come rescue Israel. I've heard that for years and years and years. The only problem is, don't exegete now. Remember, exegete. The most common interpretation now, the eagle, is not America um, or angels. It is transport planes that are going to evacuate Israel. Emergency evacuations will take place in these huge transport planes or the great eagle wings that are going to come in. That's probably the most common interpretation now. Who are the eagle's wings that's going to rescue them? Well, here's another thought. You see a lot of analogies between God rescuing his people now and God rescuing his people when they were enslaved in Egypt in the book of Exodus. The Red Sea parting, you see a lot of similarities. Um, 
And whenever that first one is described, it's described as God delivered his people out of Egypt on eagle's wings. You remember that? Exodus 19, 4 and Deuteronomy 32, 11. And you remember when Elijah called, stopped the heavens from raining for how long? Three and a half years. God took him to the brook Cherith, where ravens fed him and watered him and nourished him. It appears to be symbolic of God taking care of his children in the Old Testament. So it doesn't necessarily, to me, mean a transport plane or America. It could be God delivering his people the second time like he did the first. It could be his second exodus. How did he do the first one? On eagle's wings. How's he going to do the second one? On eagle's wings. Now notice the contrast here. An earthbound Satan and assistance from a flying eagle. Interesting, isn't it? They'll be nourished out there, we're told, in the wilderness. Because in next week in chapter 13, we're going to see that nobody's going to be able to buy food or, or sell or buy any kind of goods unless they take the mark of the beast. That's in chapter 13 in our next session. So during that time, God will nourish his people for three and a half years. Go to verse 15. The serpent, now he's called the serpent, he was called a dragon. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. Stop there for a moment. So he's going to send a flood to try to get rid of her. Where's Petra? A valley carved out by a flood through the years. And the dwellings are in the mountains above this riverbed. It looks like that picture, doesn't it? A flood. Is it literal water? Maybe Satan may be causing a massive rainstorm of hurricane force that's going to cause flooding through Jordan that'll try to drown out God's people. But it won't work. Or the river could just be a metaphor for meaning to overwhelm. But again, notice the parallels to Israel's escape from Egypt. And here, what was the Egypt escape? Through the water. What's this escape? Through the water. So you see a lot of parallels. And they will be sheltered for 42 months. Three and a half years, right? Just another side thought about the wilderness. When they came out of Egypt, Israel, and they camped in the wilderness, how many stations of camps did they have? 42. It's interesting. The same number of months they were in the wilderness, as soon as they escaped, God's going to take care of them. You see a lot of parallels here between Exodus and the second exodus. Verse 16. But the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth 
opened his mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Whoa, this is getting wild, isn't it? So Satan's going to cause this massive rainstorm of hurricane proportions, but God's going to rescue them by, by the ground opening up and swallowing the water. So the forces of nature are going to providentially converge to save Israel. Did that happen in the wilderness? Sure did. Do you remember that? Do you remember in, in uh, uh, whenever uh, Numbers 16 and 26 and Deuteronomy 11, when, when Korah and Dathan and Abiram came and complained against Moses, what happened? The ground opened up and swallowed them. That happened in the wilderness. The exact same thing happening here. You see a lot of parallels. And then verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman, he hates Israel, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. So since the, since the dragon could not get Israel as a whole, turned his attention to those who didn't flee, and it seems that the saved Jews seem to be targeted especially. Now, those who receive Christ, those who are holding to the testimony of Jesus. Now, one other note, and we'll close at 7 o'clock. One other note, if you turn to Psalm 124, when you get home tonight, turn to Psalm 124. Not now, but when you get there. Some people believe Psalm 124 was a psalm written for Israel to sing as they're delivered in chapter 12 from the flood and from all the onslaught of Satan at the end times. So Psalm 124, when you get home, read that and read it in light of, could this be a song they sing at the end of the tribulation whenever God delivers them? So we close tonight. Satan is enraged turns his attention for the short time that he has left to Jews and a smaller remnant of maybe Jews who have received Christ. And he knows his time is short, so now he enlists the help of a human being. And that's where we start in chapter 13 next session. The human being is called the man of lawlessness, who is a supercharged human with supercharged satanic powers. Who could that be? We'll talk about it next, next session. Hope that you've enjoyed our time together tonight. It's great going through this book with you. It's a fascinating book. If you have questions or comments, feel free to see me afterwards or email me. I'll be glad to respond to those to you. Let's pray together. We'll close. Father, thank you once again for victory in Jesus over allowing us to overcome through the blood of the Lamb the word of our testimony. And Father, I just pray that you'd help us this week to live victorious in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. God bless you. See you Sunday.